This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm well and well. How are you, Max? I'm good, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, we've got Frank Herzog. And Frank is, uh, we're very happy to have him because he's the, the founder of uh, Concept Laser, uh, which is one of the very, very early kind of pattern fusion companies and one of the pioneers in, uh, in the technology and one of the people that really built a, that part of the industry. And later on, he sold that company to, to GE. And now he's doing all sorts of really exciting things like uh, investments and, and decided, uh, starting up a big 3D printing application center in Lichtenfels, which is the basket weaving capital of uh, Germany, I think. Uh, so yeah, really exciting to talk to, to Frank and see what he's been up to in a very, very long time. So welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure and a great honor to be with you. I'm very excited um, to answer all your questions. And hopefully we have a very interesting um, podcast. Totally, yeah. totally. Um, um, so, so Frank, so how did you get started with 3D printing? This is a while ago. We're talking the 90s now. Where did you first come into contact with the technology? Yeah, so it goes really back uh, many, many years now. So I'm uh, 51 year old. Um, so I still, I think I'm, I'm young. But um, uh, if you look back, I think it's, uh, it's 30 years ago uh, that I had my first contact uh, with 3D printing. I was a student. Yeah, I want to uh, earn money for a university and had the chance to um, to apply for a job uh, in a yeah, 3D printing uh, prototyping company. And uh, this was around the mid-90s. And uh, in this company, I saw stereolithography, which was brand new at that time and nobody knew. Today, a lot of people know. And um, let me tell you that uh, I was an apprentice for three years at Siemens uh, for precision mechanic. And <laughs> I produced chips uh, by milling and turning. And I saw uh, a technology w with a liquid and a UV laser. And, uh, and uh, one moment later, uh, a part appeared without any waste out of a liquid. You can imagine that this was really fascinating. And yeah, at that time, I think this was the moment when I saw this, um, that I created the idea, hey, uh, what is possible with a liquid? Maybe one day it's possible with metals. And this, this idea um, was maybe the start of, of everything. But you, you right away saw that and went, ooh, metal. Yeah. Uh, that's true um, because <laughs> I I have a history on metal, so it's part of my life. And so I decided really to professionalize um, my hobby uh, to make an apprenticeship at Siemens three years. Uh, that's the dual system in Germany. You are in the company, you do practical things, and uh, two days of the week you are in school and learn theoretical things about um, metals and metal machining. And uh, metal was always in my mind. And also in that moment, uh, when I saw this technology, I thought about all the stuff I had done before with metals. And yes, it was really an impulse. Uh, it was really a spontaneous uh, idea to do the same uh, with metals, yeah. Well, how did you get come up with the idea of concept laser? How did you end up being in that position? So the first thing was um, the company owner. Um, he showed me his, his uh, company, and he was with me when when he showed me uh, the stereolithography system. And um, he heard about um, my idea um, um, about doing the same with metals, and his. His reaction was just, he said, hey, start with it. You have an idea. Uh, the, the holiday job, um, I, I paid for you, but you, you, you start now to work on your idea. So that turned out to be a student work. And uh, I 
did my final project on this topic. And um, at that time, uh, as a student, I really created two patents, which turned out to be PCT applications, uh, so worldwide applications for a special uh, exposure strategy and uh, a, a special strategy of uh, treating um, metal parts or metal powder in, in a, in a laser-based process. And so what I achieved was that um, those metal parts didn't have cracks and were not delaminated, um, looked nice from outside. But the great problem was um, that these parts still have in a porosity of 30 to 40 percent um, so the strength of the parts was really not applicable and I think this is important point and skipping point maybe that my uh, former girlfriend now wife uh, Kirstin she started a little bit later with her final project in her parents um a tool shop and she introduced a solid state laser for removing metal materials uh, to make yeah, uh, tooling processes more uh, efficient and one day I complained that I achieved so much um, but I can't continue because of the porosity and the lack of strength of the parts and she had the idea to say hey, look at my laser, um, maybe it's suitable for what you're doing. And we found out that uh, it's uh, laser had 10 times less wavelengths, so 1,064 uh, nanometers instead of the CO2 laser. Yeah, and uh, I'm now in my office here, and I, I still have the uh, device in front of me. It's a hand-driven um, metal printer. <laughs> I, I create a sketch and let it build in our tool shop and put it underneath the laser of my wife and made really very primitive uh, tests of small plates, which we melded with a laser and have gone to the university and conducted um, microstructure investigations and found out this material was completely melted. And this was... This was the start of concept laser because well, that was a wow effect. Uh, never have seen a hard a, a, a metal part uh, treated by laser with powder and was 99.5, 99.6% uh, dense. And with this idea, uh, we, we arrived at um, uh, my father's-in-law uh, and uh, my wife's uncle, who themselves were have been uh, company owners um, and showed and explained our idea of creating a metal printer. Yeah, just ask for money. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it did not take more than three hours. Uh, and they were even more excited than we were. <laughs> and they granted us a 1.5 million Deutsche Mark at that time uh, to start. Uh, nice people to know, Frank. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> they're nice people to know. There's a lot of money in uh, way back in the '90s for a startup, right? Yeah, and uh, it was from company owners who had to invest their own money in their own companies, and but it was only it was only the 1.5 million Deutsche Mark uh, because it was was a clear statement. No further money afterwards. You have to create your machine. You have to go to market, and you have to survive. So that was mm -hmm. a big load on our shoulders. And uh, guess what? Um, to deal family money is um, is very special, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, sure. you don't want to, you, you feel, I think the psychological pressure would be immense, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you do not want to disappoint your people. Um, uh, you feel a high <laughs> load of, or um, yeah, high level of responsibility because those people can need this money themselves a lot for um, investments in milling machines or in staff or something like that. So it was really, it was really a great commitment of the two guys to give us this money uh, because in Germany 
uh, we, we didn't have this startup uh, environment where you get investors. Um, VC capital was not really very common at that time. Um, you saw this in the US, of course, but not in Germany. No banks would have granted uh, this money to you. So the only chance to get this money was really uh, the uncle and the father-in-law to believe in us and to believe that we two um, sensible things uh, with the money and they believed that we that we will be successful. So that's that's a great story um, behind this story, I, I have to say. How long did it take you from that initial investment to actually um, building your first functional prototype? Um, I've been always fast. So the first prototype we created in half a year. That, that is fast. First yeah, it really was fast, but we had a really good environment. We had construction companies around here. And this is an area here in Upper Franconia. This is north of Bavaria, um, where we have a lot of machine building, a lot of um, sophisticated uh, design shops to do um, design as a service. Um, so we had um, all the environment around us um, to create such a machine with skilled people. And um, to be honest, with this first prototype, we, we printed also our first uh, conformal tool, tool insert, which we delivered to the tool shop of uh, my father-in-law. And this was really successful from the first run to reduce cycle times and to increase um, uh, product quality of plastic parts. And from this prototype, we built the M3 linear machine. This, uh, so the motto was uh, one laser, three technologies. In this machine, you could um, uh, print metal uh, powder. Uh, you also could uh, do laser erosion or laser marking and uh, laser yeah, marking for tool inserts. So because at that time we thought maybe there's not enough application for one machine for metal printing. So this was a machine dedicated uh, to the tool shop. And this machine, M3 Linear machine, we introduced to the Euromold show in Frankfurt, which was one of the biggest uh, prototyping shows in the world in Frankfurt. And um, as far as I know, it was a premiere that was the very first commercial 3D printer for laser melting uh, technology. And this was everything in less than 18 months. Wow, wow. That's, that's, a, that's crazy. Um, and, 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 and did you manage to not have to go for another financing round before that? Did you manage to do it on budget as, as they requested or? And how do you manage yeah. to do that? Because uh, how did there you manage was, to do that? There, there was um, only this 1.5 million, and uh, and uh, we were really greenhorns at the show. We were so happy that we produced the machine, realized the machine that we could show it. And one of the first companies arriving on our booth was uh, Daimler at that time. And they were fascinated because they saw these parts completely melted in original material. This was really sensational. Um, and they showed us a part. They said, if you can print this part, we will buy a machine from you. So uh, it turned out um, that Daimler was one of the first companies buying a machine, but also the tool shop of my father-in-law and the prototyping shop of the uncle. They bought one machine and we had um, a friend of them, also a tool maker, bought a fourth machine. The fifth was for us for tests. And so we had from the very first uh, show, we sold our first machines. And with this money, uh, we could do the next step uh, and the next steps. So there was, afterwards, there was no further money. Uh, granted to us um, to continue development or to survive. We just jumped right from the first experience on a trade show to industry and to the hard application, hard life in industry. That was tough, I can tell you. 
But on the other side, it qualified us also in the next steps to um, improve this machine to really stable and robust system for at the beginning for uh, tooling applications and for first metal prototypes. Oh, I think that was that's really interesting. And I think and um, also like like a lot of startups want to be in like Silicon Valley and they want to be in a, in a place like uh, New York or somewhere where it's a lot of connections, a lot of people. But you were Lichtenfels where it's kind of middle of nowhere, but also it does have the right kind of customers and the right kind of people around. Would you advise other people to go to places like that? Or do you think they should be in big cities where there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of talent? Yeah, if you if you um, if you talk and see this all from a perspective of an um, American citizen, I think um, uh, the infrastructure in Germany is uh, is is completely different. Um, by far, the distances are a lot shorter than in the U.S. And um, it, that's true. Lichtenfels is a very rural area. But uh, there are still um, uh, quite a few uh, what we call hidden champions, uh, like the tool shop of my father-in-law and the prototype shop. They were really pioneers in the field. But um, if you look around um, a distance, a circle of 200 kilometers, you have Munich, you have Nuremberg, you have many, many universities, many, many what we call um, Hochschule, which is a kind of um, university of applied sciences. And we have a lot of infrastructure, a lot of machine building. So that, um, of course, the city is 20,000 people. Um, but there's a lot around in cities like Kupo, Bamberg, Bayreuth, um, where you have an infrastructure to get um, students, to get machine building, to get design know-how, so that this is not comparable to the U.S. Um, in some respect, it was uh, a great advantage to be in that environment because uh, if I turn uh, this discussion a little bit to uh, later to um, uh, GE when we started to build the 3D campus, for example, which is a huge investment, huge building for developing and manu uh, manufacturing uh, these uh, metal printers. Uh, we had um, really um, good access to politicians to discuss projects and their importance. And we got really decisions on short notice, uh, which is really a great advantage um, in times where we needed to have speed on our technology, on our development, and could not wait for um, yeah, getting uh, the permission to build or getting to permission um, to grow things in that direction or in that direction. So uh, I think this was a very fruitful um cooperation with politicians uh, but also with the universities which helped us a lot in times where we had a really dramatic growth in our business uh, over quite a few years and uh, to be honest also um in this area we have uh, the dual um um apprenticeship system uh, where we have really skilled people um, precision mechanics, tool makers, um, with a lot a high value of understanding of their job, which we needed for uh, the development of our machines. And uh, of course, um, if you need land here in this area, it's a lot cheaper compared uh, to Munich, and it's a lot easier to get access to it. And to be honest, um, Lichtenfels is close to uh, two motorways. We had um, a high-speed train connection here. So we had all the infrastructure that people can come here easily and do business here uh, easily. This is a little bit different to the U.S. Yeah, definitely. And also, one thing you didn't mention, of course, is the 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 the, the prototyping shop that you interned at. Uh, that's Robert Hoffman, right? Which today, in the very day, 
And those are the people that were one of the investors behind uh, Concept, but also they're, they're today, they're one of the largest and best service bureaus in the world, right? They're, they're like a 200 person giant service bureau, also in Lichtenfeld, right? Yeah, so this was a, a super modern industrialized uh, prototyping shop. So it's, it was not um, handcrafted work. Um, even in the 90s, they had uh, introduced automation systems to prototyping. Uh, which was really um, invested uh, in advance. So um, we we saw optimized machines. We saw prototyping really with automation, which reduced cost and made the production more efficient. And he he's yeah one of the great pioneers in Germany. I'm investing one of the first uh, steolithography machines. In Germany, maybe or maybe in Europe, um, that was in the beginning of the nineties, <laughs> where it was necessary uh, to fly over the Great Ocean to the US to buy a machine, <laughs> because at the time it was not possible to get it in, in in Europe. And yeah, these are pioneers of of this uh, industry, and of course he was also uh, the start of. 3D printing, not only in our area, but also in, in Germany. And um, I can uh, tell you that 3D printing here in Lichtenfels, we had in the last four years, together with Concept Laser G, of course, as a maturity, but all companies in total, we have um, um, investments in only 3D printing, uh, environment, technology, people of around 175 million euros, which is really a lot compared to a 20,000 people uh, city. Dichtenfels would be the 3D printing and basket making capital of Germany, right? That's the goal, right? I would say so. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> with 3D printing, we can also earn money. <laughs> um, uh, uh, basket weaving, I think it's uh, become a tradition. and But it's important to tell that this was an um, important let me say industry. Also, we had furniture industry here, big companies, but um, everything really disappeared here because it uh, it moved to Eastern Europe and then to Far East. And uh, the handcraft work was too expensive. And uh, we experienced a time of high unemployment here in our area that one day 3D printing would arrive and would change a lot of uh, the story here nobody expected that now 3d printing is is really an important economic motor as we say in germany here in our area in upper franconia in northern bavaria and it's also place for the government here uh, not only in Bavaria, but also in Germany, really a very, very important role. Um, if you think of production of uh, the of the future. And, and how do you believe that? Because like, on the one hand, people are always saying like, you know, 3D printing is going to bring manufacturing back to Germany and back to Europe. And it's going to make people more resilient. But on the other hand, you know, we see a lot of labor being involved. And well, if we can put a machine here, then somebody could put a machine in China as well. Do you, do you really think that 3D printing is going to reshore manufacturing and that kind of thing? Or? I definitely uh, believe so. 3D printing offers you a lot of uh, freedom. So it uh, reduces uh, the complexity of producing parts uh, it allows you to produce uh, parts a lot cheaper and a lot more um, um, efficient. Um, uh, so you can, for example, uh, eliminate casting, which is which is uh, a technology not really done here in Germany, but in Eastern Europe or or Far East. Um, and the logistics around this technology, I think it's it's a lot easier. Um, and you have to think about that uh, technology gets uh, more and uh, more efficient, faster, and uh, you have a lot more possibilities with this technology compared to 20 years ago. But I think one important aspect is education. 
This is also the reason why I started a research center here, um, which we opened last year. Um, if you want to um, get uh, 3D printing and uh, digital technologies uh, in a broader manner to the society and also to the companies, I think everything starts um, in your head. So your the ideas and from the ideas, the parts you create as a 3D design, I think we have to educate a lot more young people about that there is 3D printing and we have to teach them about uh, the degrees of freedom of uh, 3D printing. If we do not get this in the heads of uh, the, the people who are maybe the next generation uh, of people being in companies and creating new products, I think um, 3D printing will not be as dynamic in growth as it could be. So I think um, it's also a big um, challenge and task for the future to intensify education with 3D printing technology. Definitely. I mean, we were, we, we all have a big, there's a big fight for talent generally, and there's a big, like a lot of companies are taking a lot longer than they would like to because they don't have the right people and they don't have the right skills and, and it's really delaying uh, adoption. I remember, for example, parts special from GE, not, not talking about details, but these were um, turbines, for example, existing from many, many parts. And with the right design, you could reduce the number of parts really to a very low number, which was tremendous in cost savings in, and also people involved. So if you need for a design of a certain product, uh, 30 3D designers, um, maybe you only need 10 because you can simplify processes. So that... <laughs> um, that helps also in our situation because um, in Germany, I can tell you, and I think in the US and in other countries, industrialized countries, it's not different. We have a really a lack of uh, skilled people and we have to deal with this lack. And uh, that means we have to be more efficient in many ways, also in design, but also in production and in other ways how we do things how did you manage to become a successful business what you mean okay you were at the right time i think you were doing this at the right time there were very few other companies and those other companies were essentially also in germany right uh, yeah. like uh uh so you were at, at, at the center of the world almost right but how did you manage to make it what, what do you think there are the skills or the principles that you think would really manage to, to, to really build this business yeah basically if you have success you have done everything right <laughs> And uh, you can tell yeah, I've exactly. done this and I have done that and uh, you can believe or not. But I think um, one aspect is very important. Um, first of all, um, I think it's with such a new technology and when you start, I think uh, you need to have the passion for it. You have to be able to work very, very hard. Um, and maybe you don't have holidays maybe you don't have uh, other things which you would like to do um i think you have to be 1000% behind of your project i think this is the very first thing and then when you start a business there are not really many values and the only value you have if you have an idea and you create a patent so what i did is that if I had an idea, and I think this was my strength, I had many ideas. I was always thinking about, hey, how can I protect the idea? Is it worth to protect it because it's expensive? And it was very often, it was a hard and difficult decision because I did not really have the money for applying for a patent, but I did it. At the end, it ended up that I um applied for 120 patents um, patent family families and with uh 482 single patents uh, international patents and this was um for securing our business model this was also for securing 
the the value of our company and uh, in in times when we were facing these dramatic growth years uh, of the company and were looking for a company with value add for concept laser partner i think it was also for judging um, the value of our company it was very important to show the protected ideas uh, which uh, made this company unique and which allowed uh, uh, the company to do things which others were not allowed to do. Yeah, I think also the the the, the highly well the higher density different metal families, but it was also I think I think what people need to realize is there's only so many ways to butter a sandwich, right? I mean. We have this in 3D printing that like we had these problems that somebody would patent a particular type of roller and then somebody else would spend like three years trying to engineer the way around this roller and trying to come up with a knife-based system. So it, it it's specifically in our market as opposed to something like internet or whatever. It, it's really important because there are sometimes only the best, best technological way of doing something, right? That's true, yeah. And uh, always um, to be innovative. Um, so every three years we had a machine innovation and every time we um, had a premiere of a new system, I told my people, this is already old-fashioned. We have to think something new. <laughs> they were surprised <laughs> uh, that in a such early stage, I, I called our new, brand new machines old-fashioned. But the day it is on the market, everybody can see it. For me, it was old-fashioned, and we had to think about how can we do it more efficient how can we do better and that, that is was always hunting the better solution hunting for the better idea um, for software for the better process to qualify materials to be close with your customers to listen closely to them um, what their problems and challenges are and to propose solutions i think it's it's a really it's a composition of many different things which you have to combine in the right way that you uh, are successful and that you can grow a business successfully. And it's also a lot company culture. So how you treat people, um, how you value people, what you give back to people who are running the last mile for your company, not only taking, but also giving. Um, I think it's, it's a really a colorful picture you have to paint um, that you create such a company in such an innovative uh, environment and, and, and industry. I'm glad you point out the people because like in the internet industry, people kind of get treated like lemons a lot. You know, you squeeze one out and get rid of them. But I think in 3D printing, we've seen that really successful companies tend to have employees with long tenure. And this makes a lot of sense because there's not that many people out there. I mean, if if if, Sa if Sally leaves because she doesn't like the culture, we're not paying her enough, there just isn't another Sally. You know what I mean? If we're looking at people, and a recruiter asked me for people like uh, with more than 10 years experience operationally, right? And mm. running metal machines. I'm like, oh, good. I know all of them. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> there just weren't that many people. Like, I'm like, I can introduce yeah. you to everyone. It's okay, yeah. you know. And I think so. I think the tenure and and trading people well is very important in our industry in particular. Absolutely, but I I would I would really claim that this is typical for medium sized family run German businesses. I think the diff most difficult um, situation you can imagine for such companies and company owners is um, yeah, to, to, to suck people, to, to tell people um, they have to leave the company. Um, they would even still earn less money instead of uh, firing somebody. Um, I think this is really in this Germany mid-sized family-run companies, I think these company owners live in the same city. They buy the food in the same supermarket. They are like you and I. That, that's typical. But also, you're right, in this industry, um, the company owners stick a lot to the people. Yeah, you're right, because there are not so many skilled outside for this technology. And I think it's important to have a, a continuous collaboration because um, this is not a technology at the end of its possibilities. <laughs> um, it's a technology 
uh, <laughs> which touches uh, only the peak of the iceberg. And there's so many things still to endeavor. And uh, for this, I think it's very important to have skilled, experienced people who have seen a lot um, around this technology and who also are mentors for younger people uh, entering in this technology and help them to yeah, get also being experienced uh, in this technology. And for this, for example, we had a very detailed and close um, collaboration with the University of Applied Sciences in Coburg uh, because uh, in the times where our company grew dramatically, uh, we knew we have to do something ourselves for recruiting academic skilled workers. And we founded uh, the Concept Laser Academy. And this academy um, had around 35, 40 students, from, uh, mainly from uh, mechanical engineering, but also from, from uh, laser technology and material science. And uh, they got a really challenges work uh, where we expected to get solutions uh, from them. And they did it as a final project, somebody also as a PhD. Um, and afterwards, almost 100% of them ended up in a department uh, of, of concept laser to develop materials, laser process, uh, technology, software, and so on. So, yeah, we recruited our own uh, academic staff at that time. And then at one point, you guys came up with a 500, which was like a huge hit, especially in dental. Did you, like? How did you come up with that machine? How did you find your market? Was it a coincidence? Did you end up making, you want to make a dental machine? What was the, what was the genesis there? I think it was absolutely no coincidence because we had a very skilled sales and marketing guy. Um, his name is Oliver Edelman. He joined the company after two years uh, when we uh, started the business concept laser. And this was strategically very important as we had really no clue of sales and we had no uh, skill and uh, know how how to sell a machine he brought all these expertise in the company and together with him and our team we really analyzed the markets we analyzed the technology uh, what it would be mostly suited for and we started quite early to find out that the dental, dental industry, so these individual mass customization products, that this would be the right thing for this technology and also implants, for example, bone implants. And at that time, the cheapest machine, the M1, cost around 350 to 400,000 euros. I really wanted to create a machine which is a lot cheaper and we can deliver um, in a higher numbers uh, to the market. And this was then one day I had the idea for the MLAB machine. The approach was to make it as easy as possible, less sensors as possible, and to make it as easy as possible for users um, to work with the machine. It came up that we created a machine for 120,000 uh, 120, euros. And uh, this had turned out to be, I think, the first machine on the metal printing market to be produced um, on our not mass production. We call it uh, in Germany a getaktete Fließfertigung. So that's a, a kind of mass production. And so that was for us uh, the breakthrough in producing high numbers of uh, such a metal printing machine, which we never have seen before. And this was possible because um, it was the right thing to do for the dental market, the pricing of the machine. We had together with a company, Dentaurum, who are specialists in dental materials. We had created a special material which was qualified, qualified for the market. It was a very superb material to be treated by a laser. We had very nice service quality and accuracy. So we had a lot of good things combined in the whole 
a production process that it made possible for us to have a system on the market yeah, which brought us also or allowed us um, a stable income or a stable revenue month per month. Uh, which was not uh, the situation before. So the situation before was you sell a machine for 300 or 600,000 euros and then you wait for the next um, order. And this was sometimes really exciting because we faced times where we really did not, didn't know how to pay uh, the wages for the next month. And um, this M lab machine was really a game changer for Concept Laser. But I think also... For the for the whole market for the whole metal printing um, industry and this machine still sells uh, very good and is very stable because it's absolutely designed uh, um, simple uh, but effective. So one would think then you would just stick to that because that really did revolutionize the market, made it much much bigger, uh, the, made the market significantly bigger, and then you would think, oh, let's keep doing more of that. And then at one point you guys came up with this M line, this M line was a thousand R thing, which was just completely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um uh, the X line one thousand R. Um, uh, so R is for reactive materials, and later it was the X line two thousand R, and this was a collaboration with Daimler, and they were asking things, and uh, we were always open for. Ideas also of our customers. And this was really crazy system because this was a completely automized system. So powder handling system. It was a 24-7 machine because you had the turntable with two building modules. You just turned it and could continue the next process on the other side of the machine. You could unpack uh, the part. Oh, we have done crazy things out of this machine. Um, motor, complete motor blocks, cylinder motor blocks. Uh, we segmented, uh, we had a special project uh, which was um, uh, supported by the Bavarian government and the research institute in Audi, where we had a more than one meter C axis. Um, and uh, we created, uh, we built. Um, um, most uh, of a car door inside in two pieces and welded it together afterwards. So complete car <laughs> parts for a car. But this machine also turned out to be very interesting for the NASA, for SpaceX. Uh, so we had a great, great success in the US for different really famous and well-known uh, companies and we sold all of these machines a lot uh, to the US through our daughter company, Consumlaser Incorporated, um, close to Dallas. At one point, you guys were actually kind of sitting pretty off of the back of the 500 sales. You're doing, you know, if for the time it was an incredible system, the thousand R and the build volume was insane. Just like the idea of the optimization of trying to have the build chamber, you know, swap out and then be replaced by another so you would have a lot higher productivity, which is amazing. And then at one point, you should be sitting pretty, right? you got the biggest house in Lichtenfels or something, and then you're all good, right? You're the guy with the biggest smile at the Aldi, right? Yeah. But then GE comes. And was, was that a difficult decision? Uh, no, it was not a difficult decision. Um, um, to be honest, we, we were well prepared when GE arrived. Um, we had uh, first uh, requests uh, in getting parts in our company or being part in our company back to 2012. This was always minority. And then uh, in beginning of 2015, a very huge US company arrived here and made a really fantastic offer for our company. And um, so my suggestion was the company owners were mainly um, my wife, I, and father-in-law and uncle. My suggestion was um, to deny because simply nobody was prepared uh, for such a situation and decision. Not our employees, not our partners uh, and customers, not our suppliers. I, I, I had a meeting with Elon Musk in 2014. He, he wanted to get known to the German guy with the 3D printing system. And I had half an hour there. And he was really nice. 
Um, and uh, he asked me afterwards a question about, hey, if I'm uh, the only uh, managing person of this company, and it, indeed I was um, CEO of Concept Laser and um, no, but no, no person more. So I had all the responsibility for things which could fail. And we were also in uh, very successful in the implant industry. Yeah, then this was a, a question also for for yeah, what what risk are we running to or into if we continue to be a company like we were a medium-sized Germany family-run company? What happens if parts fail and it's our fault? But also the growth and uh, the globalization or internationalization, industrialization, for example, these were challenges which we faced and where we started really to think, are we able with our 180 people infrastructure, uh, a very young um, daughter company in the US, founded uh, in 2014, the next year I was in China, to open also something uh, there to create infrastructure. But I learned um, it's difficult to get money into this country and even more difficult to get out of it. So um, we really had then to ask ourselves, um, is it able to, um, yeah, to be responsible for our employees, but also for our customers to run the business as we have run it uh, all the years before? And afterwards, um, when we denied these offers, uh, we were very lucky to get a very experienced person uh, in M&A business um, advising us. And we sat down at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, really to ask ourselves, uh, is it possible to um, build a company which is able to industrialize these machines, which is possible or able to act globally? And do we have also the financial resources for that growth? And what happens if uh, economically uh, cool down uh, we have or something like that and all the risks uh, around the products and machines in industries we delivered? And we came to the decision after a few months of investigation um, that we need to go for uh, a big partner, not not financially, but as a value add. And so in the mid of 2016, we announced to the uh, M&A market, we are looking for a um, powerful partner who is able to give a value add to concept laser, which means from technology, but also maybe from process side or powder size, material side. And we had 48 uh, offers, <laughs> companies, huge companies, uh, partly, uh, who were willing to uh, enter into um, a kind of uh, involvement of this company, which reduced to seven. And it was at the beginning of October 2016 that GE joined. And to take uh, or to tell the story short, uh, 26th of October, we had a deal with uh, GE and we sold. 20, no, not uh, 75% of our shares to GE. And we kept uh, 25% of the shares in our hands uh, as a clear commitment also to GE that we want to continue respectfully and uh, responsibly um, to uh, with this company and the technology, but also with our employees, our customers, that um, we did not sell uh, the shares of because of money reasons, but uh, because of risk topics for the company, growth topics for the company, and uh, uh, yes, the will to industrialize uh, this technology, which is only possible with a powerful big partner from um, an established industry. First of all, you decided to stick around for a couple of years and build this giant G headquarters there. Did you feel that you needed, you owed that to like the, the your employees, the ecosystem? What's what's uh, why did you stick around and do that? When we negotiated the contract with uh, GE, so um, we negotiated um, the guarantee to continue the company in Lichtenfels, 
because this was um, for us very important because we stick to our region. We want to grow uh, this technology here. And of course, it's an economical motor here uh, for this region and getting this away from Lichtenfels, that would have been a really bad impact on the economy and on the infrastructure here. So we were also accepting to reduce uh, our uh, yeah, sales success um, of this company tremendously to get the guarantee to continue here in Lichtenfels. But also we were very convinced about that here is a very, very fruitful, healthy environment also for GE to continue and also a lot of people with great ideas um, to continue and to further develop the technology and the systems and all the infrastructure around. Um, and I had um, yeah, the task to realize environment for the growth expectation of GE uh, for this technology here in Lichtenfels. And the result is the huge um, 3D campus close uh, to the motorways um, outside of Lichtenfels, which is really an impressive uh, global center of additive manufacturing for uh, GE. And yeah, nobody thought that this would be uh, in Lichtenfels, uh, upper Franconia. Yeah, wow, that's a great story, Frank. So, Frank, thank you so much for telling us a part of your your huge story in in Adidas so far. I mean, um, I know that we could we should we could fill a totally another episode with you easily or more or more. So, <laughs> it'd be wonderful to have you back at another time. So uh, great! Um, it's 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 an honor to talk about this, um, uh, and I like to do that uh, because it's maybe also a motivation for young people. Um, to start a business, um, to see this is, as an example. Um, <laughs> I did not believe <laughs> if somebody would have told me in the mid of 90s that this is the game come out uh, of everything I was doing around here with the powder and the laser. I would have said, you are crazy, never, never. But it, it can happen. And everybody who starts a business and believes in it and puts all his or her passion into it has a great chance to be very successful. All right. That's a wonderful sentiment. And uh, so thank you so much, Frank, for being here today. Thank you for your time. <laughs> See you next time. Uh, thank you. And Max, thank you as well for being here today. No, fascinating. A bunch of really intricate history of uh, 3D printing, and it's great to see how it evolved. And thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, this is another episode of the 3D Pod. You have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.